This is the Bristol Cable. My dad was so proud. They came to this country, came and worked their guts out. So for them to have a daughter, get an MBE, that is a testimony to them and what they did to bring up their children. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Paper. The OBE means Order of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. MBE is Member of the British Empire. I've been fighting against empire all my life. I've been fighting against slavery and colonialism all my life. So how could I then go and accept an honour that puts the word empire onto my name? That would be hypocritical. Those were the words of the late political activist and poet Benjamin Zephaniah, talking about his decision to turn down an OBE. On this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talked to somebody that accepted an MBE for services to equality, charity and community in Bristol, Ruth Pitter, former Vosco Equalities Manager, head of Reaving Fire Theatre Company and Black Women Let Loose. She tells us why she felt accepting this award was the right thing for her and her family and her descendants from the Windrush. We talked to her about her work across the charity sector, theatre, and how she broadens that out to a wider range of people, particularly from working class and black communities. And walking. We connect on the Camino de Santiago, big long walk in northern Spain that I did. It's a great chat, so set yourself down and enjoy. Hey, Ruth. Hi, Neil. Um, great to talk to you, uh, Ruth. Really good to get you on. I would say you're probably one of the most, dare I say, sort of prominent faces in the sort of community third sector in, in Bristol sort of over the years. <laughs> I like you the way you said over the years. I don't know. I've been in the sector a long time. I think probably working for an organisation like Vosca gave me lots of access to a lot of different organisations. So, yeah, and also I was out and about a lot. I'm not one of those people that can sit in an office and sit at a laptop or fiddle papers. I've got to be out. I've got to be out. I've got to be seeing people, being with you like, people. You like the face-to-face out and about yeah. meeting people, yeah. How was lockdown for you then? That must have been quite tough. Oh, I know. I mean, I did go out walking quite a lot. I yeah. could walk with one other person. And then when you can walk with six people in a, in a group, it's like, wow, this is brilliant. I Yeah, I was out every day walking with but in terms of obviously your work, you're having to do stuff yeah, online. I had to, if your surname yeah. likes to be face to face, it's quite yeah. tricky. Yeah. It was hard getting used to all this stuff on Zoom and seeing people on in little boxes on screens. You get used to it because everybody had to get used to it, didn't they? I guess your head goes into a different sort of mindset in a way where you just, there's no choice, is there? Yeah. And particularly in the sort of, and we'll drill into the detail of that a bit more in a, in a minute, but particularly in, I guess, the role that you worked in there and a lot of the roles you've worked in over the years is very much about meeting people, yeah. connecting with different communities, different parts of the city, looking in the whites of the eyes of people as you talk to them and all that. It, it must have made that type of work a bit trickier. Yeah, it, it it does. And I guess, I mean, I was thinking that it was hard for someone like me, but for the sorts of um, services that I was working with, organisations, services that they provide, mm. think about those people that really needed people, that really needed to connect, that sort of were on their own. 
And so I could sort of have a little button moan about what it was like for me, but good grief. It must have been, it was really tough, wasn't it? Yeah. We're all still recovering and I don't know how long it will take or whether we ever will from that period of time. For the uninitiated, some people may not really know what Vosca is or may not even really know much about the charity sector, the third sector, whatever you want to call it. Vosca really is like an umbrella support organisation that acts as an advocate and does training and stuff like that for loads and loads of organisations. Just tell us a little bit about a bit about Vosca. Yeah, so I was there for fifteen over fifteen years, and it was a fun. It's a fantastic organisation. We literally help groups to set up, help them with their governance, which is like how they manage their organisation, working with their volunteers, working with their trustees, working with their staff, training around all different aspects of being a voluntary sector organisation. And also, people set up an organisation because they've got a lot of passion, yeah? Bristol is amazing. People are very innovative. They're very pioneering. They get an idea. They want to help people. And this is mainly organisations that are helping different types of people in various ways, yeah? In various ways. The not-for-profit sector, they're working in housing, health, mental health, hate crime, all sorts of areas. But a lot of time people set up an organisation. They don't actually know how to run an organisation because they have a passion to do stuff. But actually, you have to think of an organisation as a business. You Mm. do need people to manage it. You do need to make sure your finances are sorted out. You do need to make sure that you're working to sort of certain terms and conditions. If you want funding, funders are going to be asking for those sorts of things. They want to see evidence. So we, Bosca, was one of the umbrella organisations that help organisations just to be in that position where they could run effectively, efficiently, and also in a position to be funded. Yeah. So, yeah, and also we were a voice for the sector. Well, like not, we encouraged the sector to have a voice. So we would work with, say, the council or the police or the health services and bring organisations together to campaign or challenge policy or procedure or to help develop policy procedure that different sectors were developing. It's a bit also that sometimes it's hard to do when you've got pe- when you're working with people and the people are what is the priority for you. Yeah. So you, your time is spent with the people that you you really want to work with and help and support. And all the administrative stuff is stuff that you end up doing early hours of the morning yeah. <laughs> or late at night. And actually, if that's not your strong point, that's fine because we all have different skill sets. And if you can find so, so one of the things is, is helping people find a trustee who can do that sort of thing, because a lot of time they don't have the money to pay for someone to do it. Yeah. You know, they don't have the funding or that someone from Vosca can come in and work with them to help them do that. So that's what's so great about Vosca and organizations like Vosca that are in that position. But obviously, you know, there's only so much organizations can do because we've got so many brilliant organisations in the city, you know. Well, and it's grown, hasn't it? So when you would have started Vosca, you obviously would have had a lot of, a lot more sort of public services being delivered by the council that have now gone out. Youth services would have been delivered by the council. They aren't now. You'd have various elements of so sport development. I was with the council. They went from a team of about 70 people. I think they've got about five left. And now lots of professional football club community departments are filling that space. It's, I guess my point is that the charity sector has grown simultaneously to fill that void as public services have have been cut or put out to tender. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's happened? Yes, youth services, the council owned so many youth centres around the city and then sort of closed them all down, voluntary sector now delivering it. It's created more competition in the voluntary sector because now you the commission's out there, you have to go and put in a tender. 
the one good thing is it's actually made sort of got the voluntary sector to think how can we work in collaboration with others so there's okay. either this competitive element where you're trying to apply for funding in a massive pool with other people that are doing similar work with you or you think who do we work with that we can actually work together on this so there are some good things, but there's less resources. There's less resources. So the voluntary sector are actually delivering a lot of what the public sector were doing with on less money. And ultimately, yeah. so we just talked about lockdown. There's lots of stuff that come out of lockdown that the voluntary sector are now picking up the pieces for. And again, without the resources that were available five, six, seven, ten years ago, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's and tough it's an time. interesting philosophical political debate, isn't it, around the kind of, you know, Germany, they... You know, have higher taxes than we do and have those services delivered by if that's government or local authority. And I've sort of worked with one for, I think you have, you worked for councils as well. Is that right? I worked with the council. I've never worked, worked with the council. Yeah. The so council. I've worked yeah, for yeah. the council and I've worked for third sector organisations. I think sometimes people become, yeah, things need to be delivered by the council or maybe you get people the other end that feel that actually the council's a bit a bit bureaucratic and a bit slow and actually a bit more innovation in the third sector. But I kind of think... Probably the most effective way of working is a collaboration of both, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah, I agree, because also the council cannot abdicate its responsibility. We know we're paying our taxes to them, so they have a responsibility. And it's quite easy then when things don't work out well to say, well, we don't deliver these services anymore. It's a voluntary sector. So you're yeah. right. It has to be a class. And it's trying to get that right, though, isn't it? It's trying to get so it's an equal process where you've got both working collectively together, collaboratively, and feeling that they, especially the voluntary sector, are not the third, not the poor relations. Yeah, it's yeah. a really good point. Yeah. I do remember there was an attitude when I worked for the local authority a little bit, which is we are the authority and they're yeah. good at what they do, but they don't really get, you know, they're slightly condescending, a little bit patronising. And I think that's probably shifted a lot in recent times where you have some really innovative organisations that do some amazing stuff. And they probably always did, but I think the the relationship with cuts to local authority has changed. And I think there is a respect for the quality that's delivered perhaps more today than there was maybe when you started. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some fantastic people working in the sector who've been there for a long time. They really know their stuff. They know their yeah. stuff better than the council. And also they're working on the ground with individuals and people so they understand what the real issues are. But also, I guess, at the end of the day, that they are willing to challenge the council. You know, they're going yeah, yeah, yeah. to speak up. They're going to end up. That's organisations like Bosco, Black Southwest Network. They have enabled those avenues to exist for organisations to say, look, we're not going to part with this. You need to change the way you do stuff. And actually, I think it's good that it's there is much more of that challenge. We, we need it. It's needed. I mean, and that may also be because awesome. because of cuts to services, therefore cuts to jobs. Quite a lot of people that are working for for sector charities have worked for councils before now, that so they come with that yeah, understanding, knowledge, that, and expertise yeah. as well, and equally how to push and lobby. Yeah, I remember when I was at Vosca and we invited Andy Marsh, who was the then chief constable to come and sit in a room and talk to some organisations around hate crime, youth organisations. It was very rare for the chief constable to do that in those days. Now, I think Sarah Crew is really like wanting to do more of it. So health services the same way. So I think they realise that the public sector organisations cannot really credibly do work without the voluntary sector on board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think there's a misunderstanding of what the voluntary sector is from people from outside it a little bit? Yeah. 
do-gooders, not professionalized, people that just do stuff in their own time because they love it. There's a lot of that. But I think they don't realize the the work that's required to run an organization, the business mind, the business headset that's needed, and also the level of the demand that people working in the sector are working to. And it's strange because, you know, like you might be a parent that, you know, supports your child with the local football club or the scouts or guides or whatever. So you've got, you sort of can sort of see it happening. Yeah. But you don't really understand enough which about is like, Which is obviously very different than yeah. if you're working for a big charity on yeah, you you know, don't decent money. Them. And I think maybe the fact it's called the voluntary sector is a bit confusing for people because, as you said, the local scout leader or the football club is very different than Sari or Bristol Rovers Community Foundation or whatever. Um, but it's a big thing, isn't it? I mean, I've got some stats here now. The voluntary sector contributed... £20 billion to the UK economy last year, which is 0.9% of GDP. That's huge. We, we don't, we do not make enough noise about what we do and what we achieve. And I've always said this, I always say that I think Voxgrid and Black Office Network have been very good, are good champions for the sector, but we, yeah. the sector itself, we've got a lot of information, like we save the public sector a lot of money. We're working with people who sometimes local authorities don't even know exist. The whole volunteering aspect where people are coming to volunteer and really enhancing skills and development, there's so much that we offer the economy that isn't recognised to the degree it should be. But I'm an artist. I'm an artist as well. And even as an artist, the art sector, the work that the art sector is doing and achieving, we undersell ourselves. We really do. I get frustrated. I'm like, we need to be up there along with all the business leaders having the same level of conversation to the same respect as the business sector has got with local authorities. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I there's definitely a closer alignment between business and, and the charity sector perhaps than there was previously. And it's taken, I would say Bristol probably is quite strong in that regard compared to potentially other cities. But again, I'll just go back to some of these national statistics, which is interesting yeah. for me. Uh, almost 1 million people work in the voluntary sector, which is 3% of the UK's workforce. So what would it be considered like a slight offshoot, the charity sector? It's quite pivotal now. Yes. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I guess, again, there's that just that whole sort of debate around, A, what is it? What does it really do? I mean, to, for average Joe public, that's, that they think a charity is children in need, don't they? Or children common in need relief. And the big yeah. ones they see on tech. And also, you know, when, you're, when you go into schools and ask, Young people, what they do for a career? Does anyone ever say, "I want to work in the charitable sector"? No, I want to don't. work in the. They don't no. see it as a career path, and no. that's something else that we're not very. You know, we could go into schools and be saying to young people what opportunities there are working in the charitable sector, and how there's so many different pathways. Once you get into housing, there's a lot of different things you can do. Mental health working with young people. There's a lot of opportunities in the sector, but again, it's not something that young people think of as a career. In an ideal world, should we need so many charities doing this work? No, but I do think that it's a great thing to have for any society where you've got people who have got that passion and want to do things not because they're being paid Unless you're in the many big national charities, you're not getting loads of pay to work in the charitable sector. But yeah. the fact is that people are really passionate about it and they do it because they really care. So I wouldn't want to see that go. German comedian Henning Wen said, uh, we yeah. don't do charity in Germany. We pay taxes. Charity is a failure of government's responsibilities. 
So do you disagree with that? A failure is a massive word, isn't it? That's a massive word to say. It's a failure. I think whatever happened, there would always be charity in some form. I'm not saying that it needs to be, we need the form that we've got now. And wouldn't it be great if there was, I'm going to look back at youth services. We know what some of the issues are on the streets of young people. There's not enough provision. When the youth service was provided by the council, and mainly because there was also voluntary sector youth services as well, working together, there was so much knowledge about what was happening. There were so many more opportunities for young people. So, yeah, that's an example of where actually, yeah, the council should be out there providing it with the voluntary sector. But I can't, I don't believe that it's about them doing it on their own. I really don't. No. Yeah, and and actually, I, like I said, that, that it becomes a political philosophical debate around, and a yeah. bit like an either or. And whilst I understand that whole concept that there is a duty for governments and councils to deliver public services, also sometimes I think you can be a bit more innovative and fleet-footed in the charity sector. You can find funding from different areas. Do you know what I mean? It's a little bit less bureaucratic at times. And I think there's an assumption that I find some council services that are delivered can be a bit clunky and take a long time to get there. And actually what we used to do was if we couldn't do something, we would work alongside an organisation that could and we would sort of fund them to do it just because it was quicker. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm part of a theatre company. We've been working with a community development team at Bristol City Council. And we've been working for quite a number, since before lockdown, working with residents to tell their stories about what they think of their local area. Then they go to other parts of the city and share their stories. So we've taken people from St. Paul's and St. Jude's to Hartcliffe and North West and taken young people from Lawrence Western to Philwood. And they've performed their stories to each other and realised that they've got a lot in common. Some of them have never been into each other's areas before. Well, that's something that the council thought to do that. If they wanted to do that, deliver that service themselves, it was going to take them ages to do. If they could go out to some creative organisations, voluntary sector organisations, to just go down and get on and do it without the red tape, we could just get on and do it. And so they've been really good because the the community development workers have worked alongside us. It's been a really great project. But the council could never have done that on their own. Is that Breathing Fire Theatre Company, Breathing Ruth? Breathing Fire, yeah. yeah so uh, we, we've got this. Well, Breathing Fire started off nearly 20 years ago now. We were, we're the only black women's playback theatre company in the whole world. And playback really? is improvisation of theatre. Improvisation. And yeah. we, apart from this organisation called the BB Crew in London, which is a black yeah. women's theatre company, we were the only other black women's theatre company in the whole country. In 2018, we set up Black Women Let Loose, which is also another Bristol-based company. Okay. So there are two black women, African-Caribbean is, heritage women companies in Bristol. In the city. And is that because theatre wouldn't be seen as um, something culturally that black people, so in this case, black women would necessarily yeah. instinctually engage with? Yeah. And the, most of the women that joined the company had never performed before and would never have the opportunity to perform and it's also, for those of us that set it up that were performers, we realised that for us to tell our own stories, we had to do it ourselves. There was no other platform for us to do that. So we now have two black women theatre companies, women of African and Caribbean heritage, in Bristol. And so there's three companies in the whole country, and two of them are in Bristol. You're going back to what you're saying about the voluntary sector in Bristol being really pioneering. This is really good stuff, yeah. For sure. And, and yeah. have you seen a shift in people that will go to 
the theatre or go to watch your stuff in the audience, the demographic of the audience, than you would if you just went to the old Vic on a, a normal night. We did a performance at Rose Green with Black Women Let Loose in November called Driving Forces. It was based around the Bristol Bus Boycott and the just stories. And a lot of the elders came. It was at Rose Green. The elders turned up and they were just so engaged. Now, they would not have gone to see a show. A good percentage would not have gone to see a show at Bristol Vic. Would so they have gone if would... you were there? Would they have gone? Because I think there's that thing around community theatre yeah. and going where people live. But also even, I think it, also even the fact that there is a, a theatre company that's black-led yeah. Uh, so you yeah. were doing it at the old Vic. Would more people come because of that anyway as well? They, yeah. yeah, they would have because it's a it's a sto- it's gonna represent their stories and it's people they know. Yeah. So that makes a massive difference. So you in order to get the people to come I go when I do go to Brussels Vic, when I see crowds of people at the old Vic who would not usually go there, it's because they've gone because it's been a story that they really connect with and the people that are telling those stories look like them. I think probably the old Vic, it is, a, I think there's always a challenge if you're a city centre venue that people from different communities in the city or different parts of the city won't necessarily go anyway to a certain degree. But also if you start to do productions that speak to people directly, you will change. I mean, an, an example I know slightly different, but similar principle is Joe Sims did a play on football and it was with three yeah. sort of working class white Bristolians yeah. there. Yeah. And the audience, yeah. uh, we were in the bar afterwards and the amount of people that came up and spoke to him, he's a mate of mine, Jim, people were like, that's the first time they'd ever been there. The first yeah, time they'd ever been there because yeah. it was a football working class play. And and I think that it's not rocket science, is it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? To, to, to effectively... Um, it, we, with that, I mean, we saw... We, um, Nancy Medina's just done Choir Boy last year, didn't she? And that yeah. was great. So, the, you know, my sister went. Family members went who don't usually go to the old Vic. So, and they yeah, really yeah. enjoyed it. And, and people... And, and then yeah. they might afterwards then go down... Because I think also there is a there is another sometimes a clunky assumption I think some white people make is that black people, for example, only want to watch things about black stories as well. Well, that, well, that might be true initially, but also you're also interested in other things as well. So yeah, there might need, be once yeah. you're there and you feel comfortable and the culture feels right, you might just go and see a I don't know a bloody Shakespeare play. It's got nothing to do with that. Do you know what I mean? It's a way in, Neil. I see it yeah, as exactly, a way yeah. in. Like you said, with the football, the people that are in, into football, that's a way into them go coming to the theatre to see something and thinking, you know what? I could come back here. What else is there that might be similar? It might not be about football, but might be interesting. And that's how you start getting people to come into this. Because also, like you said, just even going to the centre itself is a, a bit of a hassle for people. So, because do you remember the days of when Kumba was in its heyday and yeah. they had so much stuff on it? And actually, I think what happened is that people were like, just go to Kumba. I don't have to go to places in town. And then yeah, Kumba stopped. Yeah. And there was this dearth of stuff going on. I know Bristol Ovic did lots of things with like Roger Griffiths and Edson and Miles to try and get audiences to be more comfortable in those spaces. But there's still a long way to go. Also, that thing around community space, which is. Yeah, if you want to go into town and do something great and that but also like you said about doing something the Rose Green or I know there's a Brave Bowl Theatre company doing stuff over in in, in Arcliffe where people just theatre in in its essence, I mean you'll know more about this than me, it was a community thing in the first place, wasn't it? And it's sort of slightly yeah. been sort of co-opted by middle class a little bit. Or and actually what you're doing is sort of reclaiming this really for ordinary people. And a couple of years ago, a Bristol Vicks Theatre School did Midsummer Night's Dream at Markham X Centre. 
the Janeke Orchestra came and performed at Malcolm X Centre. It was that was amazing. Oh God, the audience who would never have gone to see classical music and it was packed yeah. and they loved it. So the way I see it is what theatre needs to do is come out into communities to back to where it started. Old Vic is great and I want people to go to the Old Vic. I want people to go to the tobacco factory. I want them to go to those spaces. My yeah. sister went to the tobacco factory for the first time ever a couple of weeks ago. She's in her 50s and she's Bristol born and bred. So mm -hmm. it's good that she's gone there, but get theatre also, bring them out into community centres. So there's nothing to stop Old Vic saying, let's put something on at Philwood Community Centre. Or well, or yeah, in, I mean, that's the know. other thing, isn't it? It's yeah, not yeah. just about, yeah, it's, it's not a one-way thing, is it? Because you could have all these community places linking into these big central venues, but actually, can they not do little more satellite stuff out and about in different places? It can be done and it can be done. Communities then just can sort of walk down the road. This is old-fashioned community development work, what it, we're yeah, really talking yeah, about is, here, it isn't is. it? Yeah. That's why I love the project we were doing with the council because, or that we're still doing, because we're doing a lot of theatre in community centres where communities really are embedded in base and they feel much more connected when they're trying to tell their stories it's going on around them so they really feel as though they're bringing those stories into the spaces where they live so it's great yeah yeah, yeah. and the power of theatre for you then what does it do for people what's valuable about it so yesterday, I'll give an example. We're working with South Bristol Youth and the University of Bristol around a project called Untapping Potential. And part of the session is young people from South Bristol schools are spending a day in various different locations of Bristol, like businesses, solicitors firms, the bank, the water authority, and they get to get a sense of what happens in those organisations. And it's for young people who've who've got a lot of potential but don't haven't realised it. Yeah. So they're not picking off the cream of their school. They're picking the ones that they think could really just do with a bit of a, like, confidence boost. So we do the theatre element for them as Breathing Fire. And so we get a group of young people coming into space at the university from South Bristol with people, lots from their school. And they, when you first get them in, they can, they can hardly say their name in a group. Some of them struggle. By the end of it, and this is in two hours, we've got them working on a script, some of them directing, the others all taking acting parts and performing it to each other. And even the teacher's like, wow, the confidence levels that it raises in those young people just in those two hours is just, I'm even astounded. To, to me, that is the power of what theatre is. It's not even about what you watch on the stage, but giving people the opportunity to be on in a space where they can actually use it to... And that, I guess that and that levels. confidence or that ability to express yourself being something that not just young people, but in this context, young people can take to other areas of their life, the sort yeah. of transferable stuff, yeah? Definitely. We talk, what we do with them, We the whole thing is around communication. So we ask, we get them to think about what this means when you have to be on a stage with someone and listen and work yeah. together with people and take directions from someone who's going to direct you and what the person who's directing, how you work with the team to ensure that they're going to go with your ideas or how you collaborate with ideas to mm. where people are going to stand and how they're going to say yeah. or where, you know the setting. So there's all of those, like you said, transferable skills that you're building using drama skills that you can take anywhere. Yeah. And do you do this with elders as well? 
We would we well we've been doing the project with the council with young people and with young elders. People. So most of it actually has been with elders. We're going to be doing something in um, around Wimmer Hill City Farm with a lot of volunteers there that work yeah. there. They're all older volunteers. Older well, people. I, I, I say that I say that because my dad yeah. is one thing that he got. He died ten years ago. But one thing he got into in his yeah. latter days was. Um, what they called oh St Dunstan players. He started to oh. sort of take part in theatre. Yeah. And he did it as a kid. So he did it as a kid, and he was in a and a, and he always tells this story. He was on stage, and then he just he froze, oh. and he couldn't remember his line. Oh, and he was probably about 15, 14, 15 and he just like like this. And he never went near a stage for the next forty odd oh. years of his life. And as he was old, he got talked into doing it, and he got into it, and it became his thing that he loved. And he met a whole new set of friends, oh. and sort of social stuff around it. But he always used to have, and obviously necessary advice when people do this. He always used to have a little tot of whiskey before every time he went out, <laughs> just to set his nerves. Yeah, he loved it. He loved it. I usually have one afterwards. Do you? Or, 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 I'm I thought you going to say half a bottle. Uh, you usually have half a bottle afterwards. A rum and ginger. A nice bit of rum. Yeah, yeah. But, but it has. I, but I guess. My, my point is that it, it, it's a social thing as well and it's a sense it's, of community, yeah. yeah? For older people as well, you know, a lot of people do come back into theatre that did it at school and then they just found life too busy and then they realise they get back into it. And even if you don't want to be on the stage, there's a great rapport. We're working backstage. There's a lot of responsibility. You're really engaged and involved. There's loads of work that you can do backstage to contribute to a play when I, or even the sounding or the lighting or the props or the costume. There's lots of opportunities, the directing, the producing, there's so many different roles. So you don't have to be up on the stage. And even those roles as well are great for confidence building, team working. As you say, there's a social aspect of it. I, yeah, I can't. And it's something that you benefited from yourself when you took part, that you're therefore kind of giving back a little bit. Did you feel that it yeah. helped and supported you? Yeah. When I, well, I, it saved me a bit, Neil, to be honest, because oh, okay. when I was okay. younger at school, I was a bit like, we didn't use the word ADHD in those days, but I was really one of those people that couldn't sit still. I was a bit Hyperactive, they called it then. Hyperactive, yeah. yeah. I could never focus. And I was the one that was at the back of the classroom trying to disrupt people. Yeah. I found somebody introduced me to theatre. In fact, I'll tell you what happened. We fancied a drama teacher. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so we started going to the classes, his drama classes, only because we fancied him. He's like, oh, yeah, let's go to classes. <laughs> and I actually found out that we liked it. And then a group, myself and a group of friends, we started writing plays and doing them for school assemblies around homelessness, around hate crime, around bullying. Yeah, all those things that young people want to talk about and write, mm. you know, and yeah. So we would write these plays and then perform them for school assemblies. And we did have the drama teacher in those days where we were like, Monk's yeah, Park you went to, is that right? Yeah. Monk Park, which is yeah, now... Yeah, done me research, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. In his heyday, I always say, it yeah. was, I really, I didn't dislike school. I wasn't the most academic person, but theatre, I loved it. And that's how I got into it. And so the friends and myself used to write stuff. And then, like you were saying about your dad, I didn't freeze, but I just... Other, life got in the way. So I left school. I didn't go back to it. I didn't do fear for a while. And then I did, rediscovered it. And it was like, yeah, what? Yeah. But the other thing I did do... And that's do your kind I, of job now. That's your main thing that you do. Is I really on the that's one of my stuff. main yeah. things. I really like to do. I used to take... What I did do when I was with the church down the road, I used to be a member of the church down the road, the youth group. And yeah. we used to take kids away to summer camp. It, you Kids from Liverpool to camp. And I hated camping. I hated tents. And if you did theatre, you could go and camp in the church hall. 
So it meant you were in a building. And I used to go and run the theatre group with the with the kids on the camp because it meant I didn't have to be in a tent. Yeah. <laughs> but these kids would come and spend like five days with me and we just do just make up stories and plays and then go back to the camp at the end of the week and show them what we did. And so, yeah, for me, it really had a massive impact on my life because I was, like I said, here, there, want to do it. And it, I was able to settle in something I really loved. So do you yeah. see that when you're working with some of the young people now when, you, when you're doing this work? Can you recognise yourself a little bit in some of them? I can see it. I can see it, definitely. And I, I that's why I'm really passionate about using theatre as a way to get young people to think about how they can manage behaviours and build confidence levels. That's why I'm really passionate about the work we're doing with South Bristol Youth at the moment and the university because I feel it's so important and I wish that more, yeah, there'd be more opportunities for young people to do this. That must feel nice for you then as a, a little bit of a calling, I guess, sort of feeling like you're kind of completing the circle a little bit in your own sort of life doing this work. Yeah, you know, I didn't really think about it like that, but you're right because, yeah, that was me. And I'm thinking that maybe somewhere down the line, these I was stood there yesterday with the young people who were like directing the play. I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great if they went home and thought, you know what, that's something I could do for a living yeah, and be a director yeah. or whatever. And I, for me, it was like, this might just be sowing a seed and who knows where it will go. This is the advert bit, mate. We've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right-wing media, millionaire-owned newspapers. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. Let's go back to you. You've been in the uh, Bristol Post, BBC News of late. I must say congratulations. All this work you've spoken about has been honoured with an MBE, services to equality, to charity, to community in Bristol. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Cheers. It, it feel was a good? bit of a shock. Feel good? Um, it feels good. I, I've had so many debates with people about the word empire as well. That comes in. Yeah, I'm going to drill into that in a minute, but it's just a feeling of like, feeling, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's something, it's really odd, isn't it? Because it's something you never, you see other people happening to other people. You hear on telly that these people have got, and you think, oh, good for them, brilliant. And then you get, and I think, oh, good grief, do I? You, you you do have this little sort of imposter syndrome type thing, like, should I? You do, yeah. <laughs> and it's an interesting one, as you say, because it kind of, um, it, it throws open sort of debates a bit, as you say. As a white person saying to this, I'm sort of loathe to jump into this debate too much, but it can be quite loaded, I think, even more for, for a black person to accept an empire award from the Queen and stuff. Were you conflicted a little bit in, in accepting this or did it, did you not hesitate at all? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you first mentioned it, that's the first thing that came to my head. Like the whole thing, the empire. I'm thinking, why is that the first thing that's come up for you again? Every time, you know, for a lot of other people, they don't even have to think about it. Yeah, if you were a white person, that's kind of what I meant, really. Because if you were a white person, and, you know, I don't Um, know, like Sandy Hall Riven had one, I'm not going to ask him a question. Say, well, did you feel uncomfortable when you did (laughs) it? So, so, do you know what I mean? So, it is interesting that question does come. Yeah, and it's at the back of your mind. It's a niggling thing there at the back of this lot and doesn't sit well. Was I conflicted? 
I what I straight away when I saw this, I'm like, I, I what you just don't know what to think. And then I think, right, I need to go. And then they say you can't speak to anyone; it's confidential. And I think, oh my god, I can't tell anyone. And I did tell my dad, who's 93. Yeah. And I told my dad and my brother, and my dad was so proud, not just for me, but for him. He's a scaffolder. He came to this country, laboured with his hands. And my mum, who passed away just before lockdown, was a domestic auxiliary in a hospital. So they didn't have a great level of education. They came and worked their guts out. They grafted. So for them to have a daughter to get an MBE, that is a testimony to them and what they did to bring up their children. You know, like I was, like I said, the disruptive one, the naughty one in the family. So I think there was, uh, it was nice for me to be able to say, look, after all this, a naughty child has got this. But my dad, it meant so much to him. And also having now accepted it and all the elders that I really respect have been ringing me up, saying congratulations, really. And I think, well, yeah. yeah, I wanted to ask you that, how how it's been received in the community. A lot of the elders that I've seen around and about and been out, I saw Barbara Dettering. Why hasn't she got one? Yeah, yeah. She saw her yesterday. She was, and she'd sent me a message and lots of people I respect. And I thought they, for them, it means a lot to them. So I was conflicted, but I think I, yeah, 95, percent of me feel I made the right decision in accepting it and yeah. I do also Benjamin Zephaniah passing I, away yeah let me read no, that I've got, I, I want to read that hey, sorry to jump in Reef. Like, let's explore that 10% Benjamin Zephaniah obviously died just before Christmas didn't he or around the Christmas period I've got a quote from him here when he was offered an OBE he, he, he's saying OBE means order of the British Empire MBE is member of the British Empire I've been fighting against empire all my life I've been fighting against slavery and colonialism all my life I've been writing to connect with people, not to impress governments and monarchy. So how could I then go and accept an honour that puts the word empire into my name? That would be hypocritical. That is a view that's out there. How prominent would you say that is? Yeah, I well, for, to just say, I knew I'd right. got this. I'd had the letter to say, you know, you've been recommended and we're going to be giving it to you. And then, of course, he, Benjamin Zephaniah dies and it's all out there. And so I'm sitting with this thing. Oh, God, at the same in time. In December, wow. going, oh, yeah. my God, I've just accepted this MBE. And then this whole Benjamin Zephaniah, which he was an amazing guy. Of course, it was really sad, his passing and such a role model for a lot of people, a champion for us as well. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, I feel really bad now. I've accepted it. And then and all, it kept coming up all the time. Yeah. I'm like, I, I would be, yeah. when did people find out I'm going to have to deal with all of this? Um, it, it is difficult and it does sit difficult with people. But I, part of me feels that if you're going to accept this, and I can see what Benjamin Zephaniah has got a platform. He's always had a platform. He's got, even has a, pla- even had a platform when he turned it down. Yeah. Yeah. He's a a fantastic, he was one of the first people I knew that was artist, poet when I was younger. There wasn't anyone like him. But I think if you're going to accept this and you're going to use it to some good, it is a civic award. It's not tied up with the king and queen. And even though they give it to you, it's a civic award. Yeah. But make sure you're going to do something with that thing that you get. You don't just take it and say, hey, look at me. I'm going to wear it on my chest and walk around with my chest up and da-da-da-da. If you can use it to help or if it's about working with organisations that are going to help them get a bit more funding or bring in volunteers or people or be part of a board, make it worthwhile so it makes a difference. 
that's the only do you think do you think that, it's yeah. easier say i don't know if you were yeah i'm just trying to think of an example i don't know because you i guess because you're so your role was a qualities manager you've done a lot of work around diversity and representation presumably you're obviously very aware of in, obviously are inequalities in society racial inequalities sort of championing against that to sort of arguably accept a role by the biggest perpetrators of that stuff it is an uncomfortable kind of fit or argument to make a little bit um it's easier if you were say you were i don't know if you were a black conservative that was a businesswoman or this man then it's sort of then i can kind of go yeah okay that's that's where i think the if there are accusations of hypocrisy uh, or yeah. double standards would come from even more so because yeah i do work in equalities i always have you know part of me is around the system is unfair the system is unjust talking about white privilege or not that i use that word quite a lot i use ways but you know all those that people might understand colonialism imperialism all those sorts of things that we were fighting against that we're hundreds of years having to challenge and we're still suffering the consequences of it now so yeah here i am doing all of that and i get this award that i then accept from what has got really imperialistic connotations around it so i do get that it can be seen as hypocritical but like i said i want to make it worthwhile to yeah. other people and also i think and I've spoken to other people that have received it. Once you get that letter to say it's been offered, it puts you in a different headset. And like, to be fair, I've never been completely against it because actually I have written supporting letters for okay. people that have been that have received it. I have been in the process of, I am in the process of trying to nominate somebody, which so I've been, been trying to do for a long time. quite consistent with your Yeah, approach. I've been yeah, trying yeah. to do this thing for quite a while now, and I am. I need to complete the nomination for this person. I think he's definitely deserving of it. And like I just said, someone like Barbara Deftrin, why has she got one? You've got Paul Stevenson and Guy Reed Bailey and Roy Hackett, they all got something. Anyway, so I've never been completely against it, but yeah, it, you, it does sit even more uncomfortably given what I do. But I do think that in the long run, what if none of us got any of these awards? What if it was just about certain communities, certain people? Then that would be an issue in itself as well. But your mindset is very, once you get that letter, it puts you in a very different mindset because you're thinking about your family. I was going back to my family history. I talked about so my dad and my mum and all that. They came here with nothing. I was thinking... That, and I think that's the interesting thing. Sorry to jump in, Ruth. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, Roger yeah. Griffith said similar when I spoke to him about had exactly, said exactly the same thing about uh, for my family. And I think, you know, and I like to approach things from always from a position of curiosity and understanding if, if I can. It's, I think it's quite easy. And it is easy as a white person to go, oh, why would you bloody accept it? When you're in that system to opt out of it. But when you've never even been supported, celebrated, as you say, nobody coming forward, that actually this is something that would make parents, grandparents yeah. proud from where you've come from to where you are now and to see that journey. It's it's probably nothing. It's not probably even really about the award. It's about a recognition of success by a culture and society, yeah? It's coming more from about, being, treat, yeah. being treated yeah. like yeah, being yeah. treated like shit when you came over in the fifties and sixties, to then being enrolled. Is it more about that than the actual thing? It's more about the recognition rather than the actual thing. It definitely is. You know, if I decided that I was never going to use that thing for any good at all, my parents or my dad, even you know, my aunt, my mum's sister rang me, was so excited. They would be still be so proud because that recognition is there now. It's rubber stamped on the family name for them. It's like they've got this family name stamp that says, 
we yeah. did something good. And I'm saying we, because it's not me. It's not me. There's a lot of people that have been involved in all the stuff I've done, my family, people I've worked with. I've worked with some fantastic people. But for the family, it's like, this is us. This is for us. We've done this. Is this is for us, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so I could just do nothing with it and just walk away. But they would still have that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But they would still have that pride because, like you said, it's more about the recognition for them. So interesting yeah. question to you then, yeah. If you were white, yeah, and you grew up here, would you have accepted it? Oh gosh, that's a really interesting. I, you know what? That's a really good question. I don't think I well put this way. I wouldn't be so conflicted, would I? I wouldn't be so conflicted. Like I was saying, it, because being a black woman and we don't get recognition, our community don't get the recognition we should get. When people like us get these things, we want it to be celebrated. If I was a white exactly, person, yeah. I don't know how much it would have meant to me. It would have a different meaning, which would probably just be more about the fact that it's MBE. I think with as a black woman and my family history, it carries much more a different type of meaning, but a lot of meaning yeah. for them. Because that's, um, that's the interesting yeah. thing, as you move yeah. on in that discussion, actually it becomes more about perhaps because of who you are means you accept it more than less, I think, yeah. in some ways. Does that make sense? It's, yeah, um, that, yeah. I mean, I'll put it out want, there now yeah. on record. If the Queen, I know she is an av- Well, she's dead, actually. She's, sorry, sorry, the King. The king. The king now, sorry, then. yeah. Well. <laughs> if the King is listening, and I know he is an avid listener sometimes, Unfortunately, if you do, I will have to refuse it. Yeah, you would refuse it. You would. I would refuse it. Yeah, yeah. But I would. But I would have to make it like Benjamin Zeff and I did. I'd have to make a big public thing about refusing. So what I might do is pretend (laughs) I'm going to accept it right to the eleventh hour, and then refuse it. Then and make sure I get loads of media attention about it. Because I think there's something like if you just say no to it, and then nobody knows about it. Yeah, (laughs) that's the other thing, isn't it? I thought if I turn this down first, I'm not allowed to tell anyone I've even been offered it. If I turn it down. Who knows? Yeah. Like, Who's going to believe you? Gonna... You've made it up, Reeve. Stop going around telling people you were nominated for a Queen's Award. No, you weren't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll ask you a so question, not... though, Neil. Just quickly. If it was any of your kids that were offered it, say that, they were, you know, they get to an age mm-hmm. and they get off, what would you say, yeah. what would you be saying to them? That's a very good question. I, I don't know. I think I would definitely be softer about it and more understanding if they did than I would to myself. Yeah. Um, would you want them to? Would yeah. you be... Would you prefer my dad? To- I think it's interesting to say because my dad was quite anti-monarchist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he was yeah, a sort of working yeah. class sort of Thatcherite a little bit, believe it or not. He kind of did, but he sort of believed in meritocracy. So the whole definition of that, he was quite anti it. So I've probably, so my politics are a bit more left than my dad's, but I've probably inherited that a little bit. And I kind of know he probably wouldn't have been proud of me if I did. But that's a good yeah. question. My kids, I don't know. Right. Maybe I'd like to think I would be like, no, but I don't know if I, don't know if I would. Having said that, yeah. I, I also... And this is my stance on these things. It's every every person's different. There's their, their circumstances and situation and family and culture yeah. that formulates yeah. that. And, and who the hell am I to say this is just for me? You know what I mean? It's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's I mean, my middle child's know- more like my middle child's more likely to end up in prison. Oh, than to get say that. I hope he hasn't heard. That. I hope he hasn't heard that. <laughs> He's only seven. He's only seven. So, no, yeah. I'll tell you what. When I was yeah. somebody did say that to me. One of the teachers told me that at school. Yeah, and that did stick with me. And Told I you think, what? You were more likely to end up in prison? Yeah, they were going around the did class they? saying, you know, what, the teacher was guessing what we would all end up doing and got to me and said, yeah, yeah. He said if you don't watch out, you're going to end up in prison. That really stuck with me. Why? Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. these things mean a quite... That's it. All these layers, why do you accept these awards? That sort of thing means even more. The other good thing, isn't it great that 
we could say yes or no, and that's mm -hmm. fine. That's fine, yeah. and that's how it should be. Some yeah. people don't want to get it, and that I wouldn't accept it. And some people, and a lot of people will, and that's mm. fine. What's I, your I, feeling I, about people? I mean, I probably, I don't think you've had it so much, but certainly there's been the mayor, yeah, Marvin Reese has, has got a, yeah. an OBE, has, has had a little bit of stick. I mean, you get a stick anyway, I know, but on social <laughs> media about this, what's your sense around people that are critical yeah. of this from the outside? Uh, like I said, I think until you've been offered that, you receive that letter. It's, I know I've worked with Marvin, and we've done some really good work around equality, race equality, before we were, before he was mayor. And yeah. the sad thing about that is I think Marvin, if people knew what Marvin did before he was mayor, he did some fantastic stuff, great stuff. And he, he does, he, the Gavin, this award for, for me, for Marvin, is not just about being mayor of Bristol, but it's about all the stuff he did before stuff that as before. well. But wouldn't yeah, he be open people, to the same? Wouldn't he be open to the same? The same because, that's as I am. You'd say, yeah, 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 because of the yeah. fact he's done the qualities work. People, I keep saying to everyone, it's, until you get that letter and you are, you get, it's very hard to be able to say, I would definitely, like you said, I would probably. A lot of people, and that's probably the right thing to say, I would definitely turn it down, is a really... Yeah. Well, really I don't think I know anybody. Do you know anybody in Bristol? I don't think I know, unless they've not told anyone, which is unlikely. I, I was told the new approaches, and they jested about how you take it up to the 11th hour and infuse it, they signed you out now quite early in the process with you, whether you will accept or not, because they they, not to get any... Yeah, yeah they don't um, want the, the bad press of someone saying, yeah, and then making a big deal about not having it. So, but also just to say, Benjamin Zephaniah did go on to say, which people didn't read, was that he said that the other reason he turned it down was because he didn't think he should get it just because of his fame. And he said, if I had been doing good work, like working in a if a charity, it yeah. might. He didn't say I would definitely take it. He said it may have been different. We, we, I would say congratulations, well done. Regardless of me not being a big fan of the awards, I think you definitely should win something for all the work you've done. Oh, so indeed. huge Thank congratulations you. for that, because I know yeah. you've been a force for good in the city for a long time. So yeah, maybe oh. I could wear it just for a little bit and see how it feels. And then yeah. if you win, it's your turn. You'll know whether you want to say yes or no. Yeah, and fast forward five five years when I'm presenting some other programme and I'm Lord Neil Mags, of, of, then I can be, people can, can dig me out then. The final thing I want to talk about, which is probably my favourite thing to talk about, really. You like walking. I love walking. I got into more and more walking since lockdown. Yeah. And I went to do the Camino. The Camino de Santiago is a walk through northern Spain. And it takes a month, well, sort of four to six weeks, depending on how fast you want to do it. You've done it three times or twice? Well, I did the whole thing to, twice and I've done just under half of it another time. Right. And you did it non-stop, didn't you, Ruth? So I, I, yeah, had to, yeah. I, I had to spend, after 10 days, right, I was getting a bit cocky. I was sort of going a bit fast with my poles and oh, this is all right, I can do this. And then I suddenly got to Legrano and shin splints kicked in and I tried to walk and I couldn't. I ended up spending four days holed up in a hotel with my oh. leg up. Yeah. Oh. But you didn't even have a rest day, did you? Is that right? When you were doing and it? Was, was... Well, the first time I did it nonstop, and that's because I was working at Bosco and I only, they only gave me, fortunately, they were gave me five weeks off work. Yeah. And so I had to oh, wow. do it. Bloody I get there and yeah. get back in five weeks. So I literally had no time to have any rest days. So literally we just started and walked to Santiago every day nonstop. And I mean, on your own, yeah. I did it with a friend, but you with meet friend, some right. people on the way, don't you? And she, the friend I did it with, he also had to get back to work as well. So she, we both had to get back to our jobs. The second time I did it, this four nonstop with Richard Dixon, who's your, Paul's land landlord. Brother we, Paul, yeah, 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 your brother Paul. We gave ourselves more time because I'd done it nonstop. 
And I realized that actually, you know what? I was want to build. So we built in two rest days. We did walk sort of 10 days, had a break, 11 days, had a break, another 12 days, had a break, whatever. And that did make a big difference. Just knowing that you had those days. Oh, we're older now. I literally, I mean, you can't, people say what you walked like 800 miles. 900 by the time you've done the Finisterre and back. And it does seem a little stupid. It seems bonkers, crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah it does. Yeah. But once yeah. you pull it, and as you say, even with your four days off, you want to get back into it. You do. You don't you think, do. oh, thank God, yeah. this give me an opportunity to bail out. You want to get back into it. And there is something, there's a great pull. I mean, it's a, I, I, it is a good leveller because you're It's more than a, when I say a walk, it's more than a walk. It's a pilgrimage, isn't it? It's really? a pilgrimage, yeah. but you're in a mindset. You're in, I say to people, you're in a different mindset once you set foot on it. You're walking with people from all over the world. You don't know who you're going to meet that day. You don't know the conversations you're going to have. You don't know how you're going to, your body's going to be by the end of the day, but somehow you get through. You meet people who really, once you start talking to people, I would, I'd be really knackered sometimes and i meet somebody and be chatting to them and I'd forget I was knackered. I'm like, oh, another energy level's coming to me. Yeah, and people from all over the world, as you say, from Americans to Koreans, Germans, Australians, that's what I find amazing about it. And also what I thought was quite nice is you have a little chat with somebody and then they walk on. There's you not that on. expectation yeah. of having to stay with somebody all the yeah. time because I like to be social, but I like my own little time as well. Do you adhere to the sense with walking, Ruth? Do you adhere? We, you spoke about lockdown earlier and how you were walking more and more people were and getting into it and how it's become changing people's habits. I, I think there is more to walking. I mean, I know you know this, but there is more people listening may not be tuned into this much. There's more to walking than just walking. And they say the Camino, the first two weeks is a physical challenge. The next two weeks, it's an emotional challenge, yeah, or yeah, a mental yeah. challenge. And yeah. the last two weeks, it's a spiritual challenge. There's something about walkers, why people have done it since time immemorial, that is quite healing on quite can be can be quite healing on quite a profound level. Yeah, it's not just about putting one foot in front of the other. That's the easiest bit. Some of the people that struggled the most were struggling with the emotional side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Alone with your thoughts. Yeah. Alone with their own thoughts and dealing with all the demons that have been sort of lurking in their lives and all that sort of thing. And if you I say to people, we get ready for the community. We go out and do loads of training, but we don't emotionally get ready emotionally for it a lot of the time. And we have, to, and then also even the sleeping in dorms. You like, sleep, I, yeah. So, so you sleep with bunk beds in these kind of communal yeah, sort of monastic yeah. spaces, yeah. Yes, yeah, and then you're you're on your this own, and then yeah. you're engulfed with people in a dorm where there's sometimes like a hundred people, farting, people all that, like, yeah, yeah. in showers, having to queue yeah. up for the news, all those sorts. Of, that in itself is a challenge when you're having to walk every day as well on top of it, and you're knackered, and then even having to like make conversation with people when sometimes you might not feel like it if you're eating. But like you said, the good thing is you can spend time on your own, but I, we met people that walked one down there, and she, a woman, she struggled. She said, I really struggled. She had to keep stopping because she said, I found it really hard to walk on my own and just be really? with my own yeah. thoughts. And she said, I just want it's to walk. A thing, it's that, and that's the thing. It's that bit that yeah. I think is quite critical with this because, and it doesn't have to be a Camino. It can be lots of other things that you do, but we have so many distractions in our lives that feel the void and feel space that actually you'd be surprised how many people really struggle to sit in a room 
without anything around them or to go for a walk without anything. And actually what's interesting about the Camino is some of it's quite physically demanding over the Pyrenees and then the last the, the bit, uh, Azora. Yeah. But actually the bit that gets everybody is completely flat or it's hot and there's not much to see yeah. called the Meseta, Meseta. And that's the bit that a lot of people crumble on or miss out, isn't it? That's because there's nothing around you, this lunar landscape, but you and your own mind. I That's love tough. the Meseta. You you, and you look, love it, don't you? <laughs> I look as far ahead and see nobody and look behind and see nobody if you're walking at certain times of the day and it's just you. You've got nothing else to do. You know how you've got to think about, i got to climb a hill and I'm going to have to focus on the physical element of climbing a hill because there aren't that many hills. So actually the, that all that stuff that you, the, the, the noise that has drowned out all the stuff is gone. And it's just you in that open, vast open space. And the, the challenge, the mental challenge of that is tough. You have to prepare yourself when you do the Camino physically and mentally and spiritually because all of these things are going to hit you mm. at some point. I agree, which was really interesting for me that every single person I know that kind of went home, gave up, got injured, uh, yeah. or missed the Masetta, for example, or, or whatever, most of them were quite young and fit. I knew that complete, and I didn't complete it all with them because I said, obviously, I took a bit of time out. And that's what happened. You start with the same people, then you meet different people as you go along. Everyone I met that completed it or were just still going strong when I went home were all quite old. Like yes. people in their 70s that were just taking a long time, plodding along. And I think there's something about they're almost, because of their life experience, perhaps they're a bit more comfortable with who they are. They're a little they, bit more yeah. emotionally ready for it, I think. We met this couple American couple, and they'd never walked in their life except in lockdown happened. They used to go on cruises on holiday, cruises. <laughs> and yeah. when they, and then of course they couldn't do that in lockdown, so they went and bought themselves a pair of trainers and started walking. And they found out about the Camino somehow, and they did loads of research online. But we're going to go, so they set off in their sort of sixties and started walking. They completed the whole thing steady but surely, and they That's said all the their thing. things while yeah. they were mad. But they had that approach, that maturity. They weren't the fittest people. They weren't long-time walkers. But they'd gone and they prepared for it before they went in all different ways. And they approached it with this mental steadiness. The other thing for me was I didn't see, like we talk about, I didn't see people like me on the Camino. You you probably didn't see people like me on the Camino. Yeah. But many black people on the Camino. I was like, I want to do this because I want to show that, you know, we saw some Brazilians but yeah. not from Britain. You're not right. From no, I don't think I did either, actually. No, I think I took one or two. Yeah. A couple of people from France. But I thought we need to be we need to be present on this. We need to have a presence on here as well. So even though I struggled with the fact that I was walking and not seeing people like me that I do in everyday life in Bristol, like I went with my my friend Jenny joined us, who's also African Caribbean. She came for the last three weeks and that was great. I was like, oh my God, I've got a friend who looks like me now, not my own. <laughs> But all those things are extra challenges, but I would not let that put you off because the more we go, the more we get a presence on the Camino, the more it inspires other people to do it. Uh, there is a group that you're part of called Stepping Sisters, which is black women walking in nature, which you're kind of making people feel comfortable around like-minded people, but you're also perhaps challenging some of the perceptions and stereotypes of people in the countryside a bit, you know, and I sort of grew up with black friends of mine, they wouldn't really go walking or, or go camping. The thought of going camping would be like, bloody going camping, you know? So I think you're sort of shifting yeah. inside the culture, but also perceptions as well. 
Yeah, yeah. It's a black, the Bristol Seven Sisters, and also there's an organisation called Soul Trail Wellbeing, which I'm a, now a director of. Again, for the majority of people of colour, just between Christmas and New Year, Soul Trail Wellbeing did a walk out in Swineford. Nearly 30 of us, men and women. So it was great to get black men out walking as well. What's been the barrier, Ruth? Why would there not be people walking so much from the black community yeah. traditionally here? Why? It's funny because my parent, my mum came from the countryside. She walked everywhere. They brought up seven kids in Bristol, didn't have time to take us out doing anything like that. And it was seen as a allegedly activity. We walked because we had to and we couldn't afford to. So walking became something that wasn't allegedly activity. I see. And I think there's that mentality. And also, yeah, I've been out in the countryside and I've been, a farmer's come out one day and had a go at me and said, look, you're lucky that I didn't set the bull on you. That sort of thing. Lucky that's what was coming up walking. Exactly. So we have to, once we're more out in the countryside, the more people get used to seeing us out there. It's a movement in many ways, yeah. Preach, yeah. yeah, love it. Thank you, Ruth. That's a lovely way to end. Or shall I actually know I need to address you as Ruth Pitter, MBE. Oh. When I see you next, I will. Do I, what do I, do I bow or curtsy? What, what will I, I do? Not, I, yeah. even I, don't need, I don't even know how to curtsy. So <laughs> if you did question how good thing, what are you trying to do, Neil? <laughs> Many thanks to Ruth Pitter for joining us on this week's episode of Bristol Unpacked and we will be back next time with a brand new topic and another fantastic guest. I'm Neil Maggs, a journalist and documentary maker from Bristol and big thanks to our production team at the Bristol Cable in collaboration with SUN Noise and Blue Dot for our music. <laughs> <laughs>